our passage today is Deuteronomy 30. And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today, with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. And the Lord your God will put all these curses on your foes and enemies who persecuted you. And you shall again obey the voice of the Lord and keep all his commandments that I command you today. The Lord your God will make you abundantly prosperous in all the work of your hand, in the fruit of your womb, and in the fruit of your cattle, and in the fruit of your ground. For the Lord will again take delight in prospering you, as he took delight in your fathers. When you obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that are written in the book of the law, when you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways and keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, and holding fast to him. For he is your life and length of days, that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. This is the word of the Lord. Well, there are some songs that we sing, Jay, that I just want to shout. And that last song that we sang, I wanted to shout and just scream it out loud, but I knew I couldn't. <laughs> so I had to refrain myself and just say, oh, God. Now, I look at myself as a man that is a pretty black and white person. I'm a pretty black and white person, and I think people who know me the best would say that 
I'm a, I'm a black and white person as well. I'm not a wishy-washy type of person. But these last few weeks, as we've been going through the book of Deuteronomy and these last chapters, 27, 28, 29, it's really been challenging me. It's been challenging me to really look at my view of God. It's not that it's, been sh- it's shaken my view of God, but it's challenged me to, to look more intently of how I view God, to, to drill down deeper at really how do I view God. Because we've been faced with some questions. We've been faced with the fact that God is a God who is good. He is a God who is loving and full of mercy and full of grace, always wanting to forgive. But at the same time, God is a God of justice and judgment. And sometimes when you're faced with those two realities about God, it brings some questions into people's minds. It brings some questions like, how can there be a God who is so loving and so good, at the same time, he's a God who is a God of justice and judgment. Haven't we seen that with the, the blessings and the curses? How is it that it seems like that God always wants to come along and graciously forgive people? He seemingly, he seemingly wants to forgive unconditionally. But then we see the curses. The curses are so fearsome that we looked at in chapter 28. They're so fearsome, and they're obviously conditional. And so it seems like for the first time in the biblical narrative that it makes it clear that there is some kind of tension. There's some tension, and this tension is something that we've brought about. We have a holy God, a God of justice, a God who will punish sin, who cannot clear the guilty. And he says that to Moses in chapter 38 of Exodus. But in other words, in other words, what he's saying is that I cannot let sin go unpunished. But at the same time, God is a God of endless love. He's a God of endless faithfulness, endless forgiveness. And he desires relationship with us. And it's because of us, us human beings, and because of Israel, how flawed they were and sinful they were, that it creates this unresolved tension. Because the question is this, how can God be faithful to who he is, and how can God be faithful to who he is? That's the question. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in one of his revival sermons, put it so beautifully. The good doctor using Exodus 33, when Moses asked God, God, I want to see your glory. And God, you know what happened? God said, okay, I'll put you in the cleft of the rock, I'll cover you with my hand as I walk by, and then I'll let you see the backside of me. Because no man could see, me, see my face and live. 
And in, in all that, it's interesting what the doctor said. In all that, as he was talking to Moses, saying this to Moses, he said, I will show you my goodness. And in all that, he says, I will forgive who I will, will forgive. And I, and yet, I will punish every sin. I will forgive who I will forgive, but yet I will punish every sin. And he said, doesn't that seem to be a contradiction? I'll punish, I will forgive every, whoever I want to forgive, but I'll for, punish every sin. And the doctor put it this way. This is what he said. Why is it that God wants to forgive? Why is it that God wants to, to forgive and punish, or why is it that God punishes every sin? Why is it, do you know why God punishes every sin? It's because he is so good. He's so good. If there was a judge who would just said, hey, your crime, don't worry about it. I'll let you go. We wouldn't think that that guy would be a very good judge, would we? No, we wouldn't. We wouldn't think that, that he was a good judge. But on the other hand, why is it that God wants to forgive us? Why is it that God wants to, to love us? Why is it that God wants to, he won't let us go? It's because he's so good. He's so good. Ah, you say. How in the world, how in the world could there be a God that is that comprehensively good? How's that possible? Listen, either he's going to be fully good in terms of his holiness and judgment and only partially good in his love and his mercy. In terms of his love and mercy. So either you have a God fully good in his love, but not good in his holiness and judgment. And only partially good in his love. But there's no way, there is no way on earth that there can be a God who is completely good, comprehensively good. There's just no way. And that is why we have groups of people and we have churches who lean one way or the other on their view of God. But as a church, as a church, we preach and we believe that God, that the Bible clearly teaches that God, the God that we serve, is fully good in his mercy and his love. And he is fully good in his holiness and his judgment and his justice. Simultaneously, all the time. And folks, that is the basis of the gospel. That's the basis of the gospel. Now, as we jump off into chapter 30 here, I want to give you three things that we're going to see in this chapter. And the beauty of this chapter is that Moses is looking forward to 
the future. He's looking forward to the future. And so the first thing that we're going to see is this. We all fail to live as we ought. We all fail to live as we ought. Now, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time here, but I do think it's important because if we don't get what is being said right up front in this chapter, then we can misread the very end of the chapter. And so look what Moses says in verse 1. He says, and when, you all, and when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you. Now, what God is saying here is that I'm going to drive you out of the land. I am going to drive you out. Why? Because you failed to live up to the covenant. You failed to keep the covenant. They failed to obey God. And so God disperses them among the nations. Now, if we were to go back in chapter 28, and if you were to look at all those curses again, the ultimate curse was that they would be exiled. They would be sent far away from the land. They would be plundered. They would be enslaved once again. And God says in verse 1, you will fail. You're going to fail. You will bring all these curses upon your head. You, they will come down on you, and what I said will happen to you will happen to you. Now, let's just step back a moment. And let's just ask this question. What has Moses been doing all through the book of Deuteronomy? What, has been, what, what was Moses' purpose by recounting all these laws to the people. Moses has been preaching to the people. And some, some people say that this was the very first sermon series in the whole Bible. But Moses is preaching to the people, telling them how they ought to live. Telling them, this is how God wants you to live. He wants you to live like this. He wants you to live like this. He wants you to live like this. And it's almost like God was a coach, or, or Moses was a coach before the big game. And so here the coach comes into the locker room, and he gathers all the, the players, and he says, you guys have practiced so hard all week. We have put a game plan in place, and you have learned the game plan, and we are ready to go out, and we're ready to win this game. And so he, he's pumping them up. He's encouraging them. He's motivating them, ready to go out and to win the game. And then right before they go out onto the field, he gathers them up in the locker room. Jay, I, I know you've done this before. You gather all the, the team up together. They're kind of huddled up in the middle of the locker room. And the last words he says before they go out, he says this. You guys are going to fail. You're going to fail. You're going to lose the game today. Now you say, that's not very good motivational coaching. Now you're right, it's not. But it's really good gospel preaching. 
And that's what Moses, it seems like Moses does here. He says, you guys are going to fail. You're going to fail. And so what Moses is saying here is he's looking at Israel, but of course, he's looking at the whole human race. Because Israel really is representing all of us. He's looking at the human race, he's looking at Israel, and he says, listen guys, you know what you ought to do, but you won't do it. You know what to do, but you won't do it. Listen, the Israelites knew what to do. They had all the instructions that they needed from God. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. They, they had it all. They knew what to do, but they just wouldn't do it. Well, how about we get real right now? Every one of us here this morning, we know what to do. We know what to do. You see, the problem isn't in knowing what to do. I mean, God has given us all the information we need, right? This is all the information we need. We don't need more books telling us how to live. I know this one's going to hurt you bad. We don't need more podcasts to listen to to tell you how to live. We have all the information. The problem is not in the information, knowing what to do. The problem is in the doing of what we know to do. then what do we need? We need the power to do what we don't have the power to do right now. We need the power to do the power, to, that, what, the power that we don't have to do right now. I think I messed that totally up. I think you got the, the point. And so the first thing that Moses tells them here is, guys, you're going to fail. You are going to fail. And listen, we have constantly, we have to constantly be reminding ourselves of that as we preach the gospel to ourselves. We don't have the power to do it in ourselves. Only, we don't have the power to do what we know to do apart from the gospel we, don't, we can't do it. And so the first thing that Moses tells them is you're going to fail. You're going to fail. The second future thing that we see that Moses gives them is this. God has a plan to fix hearts. God has a plan to fix hearts. Now, 
if you didn't see, if you didn't read what Dylan sent out in the newsletter this week about verse 6, then I want to share it with you right now. Because what he sent out there in the newsletter was that what John Piper says about verse 6 here in Deuteronomy chapter 30. What John Piper says about verse 6 is, it is the most precious and the most hopeful verse in the entire chapter. It is the most precious and the most hopeful verse in the whole entire chapter. And in my mind, it is the center of this chapter. And so we're going to camp out here for a moment, okay? So just relax and hang on in this, in this right here. And so let's look at verse 6, see what it says. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Now, if we were to go back into verses 2 through 5 there, we would see that Moses tells the people that they're going to return back to the land. They're going to return back to the land that God would bring them back from exile and he would restore the land to them and it would be better than ever. They would be more prosperous than they ever had been, more prosperous than their fathers. But then in verse 6, Moses says that the Lord God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your offspring and you will love the Lord your God with all your hearts so that you may live. So here's the question. What is Moses talking about? Now, we have already seen this whole idea about circumcising the heart. In fact, in Deuteronomy 10, 16, uh, Moses says, he tells them to circumcise the foreskin of their hearts. Now, that's different. That's totally different than what Moses is saying here. Because what he's talking about here is what the, Bible, the rest of the Bible clearly brings out. Like in Jeremiah, in Ezekiel, when it calls this the new covenant, the new heart. Or when Paul, in Romans chapter 2, verse 29, he says that our hearts are circumcised. Or Paul in Philippians 3, 3 says that we are the true circumcision. And so what he's talking about here is gospel. This is the gospel. <clears throat> you see, Moses is talking beyond anything that the Israelites would ever experience at that time. So what is a circumcised heart? Well, what is a heart? You've probably heard this before. And, uh, you know, the English word heart means the seed of emotions. It is the seed of the emotions. But the Bible, when the Bible speaks of heart, what it means in the Bible, it means the center of the whole being. It's the center of the whole being. Now, we so often are slaves to our, 
our culture. Because in our culture today, our culture looks at the emotions and feelings as being the ultimate value. Our emotions and our feelings are the ultimate value. And so, oftentimes, we read, when we read the Bible, when it talks about the heart, it affects how we, how we view this whole thing about the heart. And so when the Bible talks about the heart, it is seriously talking about the control center of the whole being. You know how Proverbs 3, 5 says, trust the Lord with all your heart? Trust in the Lord with all your heart? Well, that's what hearts do. They trust in something. They trust in something. You know, in Genesis chapter 6, when it says, the intentions of man's heart was all towards evil. Well, that's what hearts do. They turn and face something. You know, when Jesus said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be. You see, the heart decides what you will treasure. You see, the heart decides what you will see as supreme good in your life. What your ultimate hope is. What you're going to face all day. That's all decided from your heart. You see, the heart is what you love most. The heart is a seed of your greatest loves. Because what the heart wants most, the mind finds reasonable. The emotions find desirable. And the will finds doable. Let me repeat that. What the heart wants most, the mind finds reasonable. The emotions find desirable. And the will finds doable. And what that means is that our heart sets our affection. It affects our mind. It affects our emotions. It affects our will. And having said all that, <clears throat> then what does it mean to have a circumcised heart? What does it mean to have a circumcised heart? Now, when you talk about a circumcised heart, it's really kind of a scary thing. It's, it's a scary thing to think about. Peter Craigie, in his commentary, he thinks it means that God is doing surgery on your heart. He's doing surgery on your heart. Other commentators, they look at it like this. Circumcision was a sign. It was a sign of an, the outwardly and the externally obedience that you put forth. It was the physical sign that now I have come into a covenant community and I'm making myself subject to the laws of God. But then heart circumcision would be the inner love motivation. The inner love motivation to do that. Isn't that what it says here in verse 6? Isn't that what it says? Let's read it again. Look what it says. 
And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring. Why? So that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart. You'll love God with all your heart. Now, let me illustrate it to you like this. You know, there's such a thing as marriages where two people tie the knot. They, they tie the knot for some legal purpose or some business purpose or some political gain. I mean, there have been thousands upon thousands of marriages throughout the centuries where the, re- the only reason they got married was some political purpose or legal purpose. Now, when I was falling in love with my wife, um, as, hard it, as hard as it is to believe, there were some things I needed to change about me. And so, Kimberly would come and she'd say, Jim, if you could just please not do that, or maybe do this. You know, and, and I knew, I knew that it would make her happy if I would just change that about myself. But I didn't do it to make her happy. I did it because I loved her. I loved her. It wasn't like that somehow I was submitting myself to her will. Although in a sense I was. It wasn't like that she was commanding me to change. But in a sense, she was kind of asking me, hey, could you change this about you? And so, it really, it wasn't that she was demanding me to do it, but I was doing it because I loved her. And that's what it means to have a circumcised heart. A circumcised heart is when what you ought to do and what you want to do are the same. A circumcised heart is what is when what you ought to do and what you want to do are the same. One of the best expressions of this comes from a line from, a, from a, a, an obscure John Newton's him. Listen to what he says. Our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty, are joined to part no more. Our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty, are joined to part no more. I love that. It's when our pleasure and our duty are the same thing. That is a circumcised heart. Now, how is that all possible? How is it possible to get a circumcised heart? How could, do, how could God do such a thing? Now, I didn't grow up in church. So I never went to Sunday school. I never learned the Bible stories. 
you know, as a little, little tyke in Sunday school. Some of you did. Some of you grew up in, in church. Some of you went to Sunday school growing up. And every time that something was mentioned about circumcision, did you ever ask the teacher, what is circumcision? What is circumcision? What did they tell you? What Did they explain it to you? Or did they say, go ask your parents? <laughs> yeah, go ask your parents. Now, when you first learned of circumcision, when you first learned what circumcision was, how did you respond? No. No. You, you, you got to be kidding. <clears throat> you got to be kidding. That's not, that, that's gross. What in the world? Couldn't have God just asked us to get a tattoo? Circumcision's gross. It's bloody. And that's the whole point. That is the whole point. Back in the day, when people made covenants, you know, they didn't sign their name on the dotted line, did they? You know what they did? They took an animal, and they cut it in two, and they laid it on the ground, one piece over here, one piece over here, and they would walk between it, stating that if we do not keep this covenant, what has happened to this animal will happen to us. That was making a covenant. Why not some other way? Why not do it some other way, God? You see, God didn't, he did it this way to show us what the penalty of sin is. What the penalty of sin is. Listen, sin is so dire. Sin is so intimate. Sin is so gross. That's why God did it this way. Why do we keep this idea of circumcision around today? Why do we still do that? Why do we talk about it? Well, I want you to look at Colossians chapter 2. Look what it says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 11. <clears throat> Listen to what Paul says. In him also you were circumcised by the circumcision made without hands by putting off of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. The circumcision of Christ. What, Paul, what is Paul talking about here? He's talking about the cross. He's talking about the cross. It says, Christians, your hearts have been circumcised by the circumcision of Christ. It doesn't just say that when we become a Christian, we, that God gives us a new heart. No, you, you got the circumcision of Christ. Now, what does that mean? Most theologians would point to this, that on the cross, Jesus experienced 
the curse of the covenant. He experienced the curse of the covenant. What is the curse of the covenant? The curse of the covenant is to be cut off. Is to be cut off. And by the way, all of us know that. All of, all of us know that the curse is to be cut off. Because if you, if you wrong somebody, if you lie to them or if you cheat, cheat them, what are they going to do to you? What do they do? They cut you off. I don't have anything to do with you anymore. You're cut off. And so the curse of the covenant was to be cut off. So God says, you disobey me, the penalty is to be cut off. Cut off from me. Cut off from life. Cut off from light. To be cut off from everything. And when Jesus was on the cross, he experienced that penalty for you and for me. That's what we deserve. But he experienced it. Listen, another way of putting it is this. In the garden, God cut off Adam and Eve from the garden. Why? He cut them off because of their sin. And then what did God do? God set a cherubim in front of the entrance of the garden with a flaming sword going all different directions. That was the first ninja. He cut them off. And the only way to get back into the garden was to go under the sword. Under the sword. And in a sense, Christ went under the sword for us. And in a sense, that was his circumcision. He was cut off and he experienced that for you and for me. Now, when I put my faith in Christ, objectively, I have a relationship with Christ. But subjectively, when I see what Christ did for me, it moves me. It moves me, and now I want my pleasures and my duty to be the same thing. In fact, John Newton goes on in that hymn. Listen, look what he, sa he says. He says, our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty, are joined to part no more. What beauty? What beauty? Here it is. To see the law by Christ fulfilled and hear the pardoning voice transforms a slave into a child, and duty into choice. Do you see that? Do you see what he's saying there? When you and I see Christ on the cross and what he did for us, that should move us. That should move us that our duty becomes a choice now. It's a choice. And that is experiencing the circumcision of Christ in your life. Even right now, if you are here this morning and you are not a believer in Christ, 
if somehow you see that your sin, because of your sin, that you deserve to be cut off from God. You deserve to be cut off from a holy God because you are a sinner. But at the same time, you see the beauty of Christ and what he did for you at the cross. That is God moving in your heart. That is God working in your life to circumcise your heart. Don't ignore what God's doing in your life right now. Don't ignore what God wants to do to bring you back to himself. But receive it. Believe it and receive it by faith. Because God has a plan to fix hearts. And God has a plan to fix your heart. Lastly, as we look at this last aspect, aspect of the future things that, that Moses mentions here, there does seem to be a sense in which he's talking about the present. When you look at what Moses says, he tells them, hey, you guys are going to fail, and as a result, the curse is coming down upon you. But God will bring you back, he'll bring you back, and he's going to circumcise your hearts. But really, this promise is the new covenant. It's the new birth. But look what he says here. Look what Moses says in verse 11. This is what he says. For the covenant, or for the commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, Who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, Who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it? But the word is near, very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. So he says here that I am commanding you today, what I'm commanding you, it's not too hard. It's not too hard, neither is it too far off. No, it is right there. It's very near to you. It's in your mouth and it's in your heart. Now, what does that mean? Well, what it does mean, on one hand, is that Israel was without excuse. They had no excuse whatsoever. Because God had brought it to them. God had, the law was very near them. They didn't have to go looking for it. They didn't have to go up in heaven and somehow bring it down to them. They didn't have to go across the sea to somehow bring it to them. No, it was very near to them. It was right there. They didn't have to figure out what God's will was. God had given it to them. So love God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. It was right there. No excuses. 
Yet we do need to remember that Moses said, you're going to fail. You're going to fail. They're not going to keep the covenant. You just won't do it. And so, Apostle Paul was right. When he said in Romans chapter 10, look what, look what Paul says in Romans chapter 10 about this. As he is quoting Moses' words here, Romans 10, 4. Paul says, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if, we, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For the, with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And so, Paul here, what he's saying here is that the only word that will not crush you the only word that is not too difficult for you, the only word that you don't have to achieve it, is the gospel. It's the gospel. Because Jesus has already achieved it for you. Paul, interpreting Moses' words here in Deuteronomy, he's, he's saying this. He says, don't try to earn your salvation by trying to bring Jesus down from heaven or trying to, to raise Jesus up from the dead? No. He came from heaven to save you. He went to the abyss to save you. If you and I try to save ourselves, then it's like us saying, Jesus, what you did doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Only the gospel is the only word that is not too difficult for us. Only the gospel will not crush us. Only the word, any other word, will bring us destruction into our lives. And so Moses says here in Deuteronomy 30, what he says to us is this. The gospel will go forth. The gospel will go forth. Now, as Moses stood before the Israelites, preaching these words in Deuteronomy 30, it was all future things. It were all future things to these people. And it was future things that they would experience in the future. And some of the things that Moses says, they would never experience personally. But in our context today, the things that we see here in chapter 30 they are present reality. They're present reality. You see, we all fell. Every one of us in this room fell. 
we all fail to live up to how we ought to live. But because God is so infinitely good, He has provided a way to fix our hearts through Christ. So we can love God with all our heart. And we can keep His commandments. Not to somehow earn our salvation, but we keep His commandments because we love Him. We love Him. But then God has put His Word very near to us. Even in our mouths and in our hearts. Why? So that we can proclaim that Word to a world that so desperately needs it. Even this morning, we get to proclaim His Word together. He's given us an opportunity to proclaim His Word together, the Gospel, through the taking of the Lord's Supper. As we remember how Christ gave His body as a sacrifice to us, and as we remember how He shed His blood on that cross so that our sins could be forgiven, And then the Bible tells us when we do that together, we proclaim his death, the Lord's death until he comes again. And so if you know Christ, then partake of this family meal together and look forward to the return of Christ. But if you have never trusted Christ with your heart, given him your life, then don't take this meal We ask you just to trust Christ, to trust Christ with your life, to believe in Him and make Him Lord of your life. Let's pray together. First Corinthians 11, verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Let's pray. Jesus, your word is very near. It is in our hearts, it is in our mouths. We've heard it proclaimed today, and we're also even going to put the visible word in our mouths. We're going to eat bread, and we're going to drink juice, and we are going to remember your circumcision. We're going to remember, Jesus, when you were cut off, you were cut off from your father, 
so that we could be with him and so that we could be with you and be ourselves temples of your Holy Spirit so that you can live within us and guide us and change us and continually refresh and renew our hearts. Those of us who are Christians, and we already know you today, Lord, um, we don't need new hearts, but we need continual renewal because we forget to look at your beauty and gaze back at the cross and remember how precious you are, how you are our treasure. We forget and we get wrapped up in this world, Lord. So will you help us to examine our hearts this morning for sin that is lurking, for sin that has dominated our minds, for idols that we've put in your way, Lord, and we want to cast them down, Lord. Bring us to repentance and let us leave this place with renewed commitment to obey your commandments because we love you. And we love you because you loved us first. That's what we see in the cross. And God, as, as Jim prayed, for those of us here who do not know you, I pray that you would circumcise their hearts today. That you would turn their hearts toward you and away from their sin. That they would lay down their lives at your feet. That they would put their hopes and their future into your hands because your hands are good. You are holy and you are loving, and you are worthy of our praise, Lord. Thank you for your death. Thank you for your resurrection. Thank you for new hearts. We celebrate what you've done for us today, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. <laughs>